to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the Second World War, American armored forces used the M4 Sherman tank and also the Stuart light tank and the Lee Grant tank, the Jackson tank destroyer, post-war the Sheridan tank. Who's missing? Only the general who won the greatest battle of the war, yet whose name still makes a challenging Jeopardy answer. George Gordon Meade is the Rodney Dangerfield of great Civil War generals, but he finally gets some respect from Kent Masterson Brown in the new book, Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the regional champion E-C-U Pirates men's baseball team. But not speaking for the team, not speaking for the NCAA, not speaking for anyone but myself, as always here on Civil War Talk Radio, where my guest likewise speaks only for himself tonight. But if I were speaking for the team, I would say, arg, the baseball pirates won the uh, regional level of the NCAA national tournament last weekend, uh, winning all three of their games. Their goal is to get to the College World Series. No team has played more postseason playoff games without ever making it to the Final Eight than ECU. Will this be the year? They have to win two out of three this coming weekend against Vanderbilt in Nashville. They're only the number four team in the whole country. It's going to be a tough road to hoe, but we will see if the Pirates can manage it. Um, it's, it the, all three games last weekend were agonizing, I have to say. They, they were not... They were, they were tough games. One of them didn't end till one in the morning. It was uh, it wasn't f- 
an enjoyable watch. It was an agonizing watch, but the outcome was was worth it. Um, and then we'll be done with baseball, much as we'll be done with the uh, the season itself here at Civil War Talk Radio. We have one more show in the 2020-2021 season of Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest next week will be Larry Daniel talking about the Army of Tennessee in his book, Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. And then we'll go on our usual summer hiatus. I'll be lining up shows for the fall. We'll come back on August 25th of 2021 with new books to talk about, new uh, authors to interview, and you can find out who those people will be at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, or the Impediments of War Facebook page. Mark Gaffney will keep those up to date and let us know who's going to be up next on the show. Uh, We may have a sponsor uh, for a show every now and then next season. Uh, Civil War Trails was kind enough to sponsor a show this season. They're welcome back next year. The policy here is if you have something related to the anything that we're all interested in, Civil War history in some way, and want to sponsor a show, you're welcome to do that. Contact me, and I'll put you in touch with the gurus of Voice America who can make that happen. Uh, the uh, if, you, if you want to be a non-paying sponsor, you just have to randomly be somebody like Pirate Deli here in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. For many years, Mike's Deli was the placed across the street from the Brewster building where I would occasionally get the uh, number four turkey uh, deluxe sandwich. But uh, the owner of Mike's Deli, who's not Mike, but Terry, Mike passed away a long time ago, his brother Terry, ran it forever. And Terry has finally uh, decided to hang up the whatever utensil you use to run a deli. And uh, the new owners have renamed it Pirate Deli. They promise it'll be a similar, more geared towards students than professors, they say. And that's good because we professors don't have anything uh, geared to us now on campus as far as food places. Everything is, is fast food aimed at students. So take away the deli, too. I'm, I'm not bitter. Uh, and Pirate's mm-hmm. Deli may be great. We'll find out. So I'll keep you abreast mm-hmm. of that in the fall. Anyway, enough about food. It's time to talk about an army that was running out of food, in fact, uh, uh, Meade's Army at Gettysburg. You can help keep Civil War Talk Radio from running out of provisions by donating to the Civil War Talk Radio book and libation and hardtack fund, which you find at www.impedimentsofwar.org. But that's not our topic tonight. It is, as said a moment ago, uh, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command, new book by Kent Masterson Brown. Uh, he's an old friend of the show. He's been here before and happy to have him back again. Uh, uh, Kent, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. It's great to be here. <clears throat> well, wel- welcome back to the show. It's, uh, uh, you and I got to talk about this topic a little bit a few years ago at the Civil War Institute uh, at Gettysburg. Yes. When you uh, you led a tour that covers much of the ground that this book covers, showing yeah. where Lee had, right. where Meade had the army uh, before the battle, and mm-hmm. 
in that tour, and again in your book, you're, you you lay out your thesis, and so let's put it on the table for the listeners. Uh, Meade has not gotten credit for what he did at Gettysburg is the, the oh. underlying message of this book. Uh, so let's start right. with that. Why hasn't he? Well, I I think the 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 the, the real answer to that is uh, starts with Lincoln and Lincoln's closest confidants in the White House. That includes Edwin Stanton and um, and uh, uh, Dana, uh, other individuals in the White House around Lincoln, who, uh, toward the end of the campaign, as Meade was closing in on Lee, um, uh, complained about uh, Meade's slowness, in quotes now, and then also uh, seemingly accused Meade of uh, purposefully allowing Lee to cross the Potomac River and and using two letters that Meade wrote to General Darius Couch and General William Smith of Couch's command. And those were written on the 5th of July, and apparently Lincoln read them in the, in the, in the War Department uh, uh, telegraph room and came back and complained that Meade was allowing Meade, uh, Lee to escape. He didn't want to fight him again. And then as Meade closed in on Lee on the uh, 10th, 12th, and 13th of July, and Lee had fortified the Army of, the, uh, of Northern Virginia along a defense line between Hagerstown and Downsville, just above the Potomac River, that somehow uh, Meade uh, refused to attack, instead calling a council of war that advised him against an attack, and then allowed Lee to escape across the Potomac River uh, on the 14th of July. And um, <clears throat> frankly, up until uh, Meade had actually moved the army uh, to a point where he set up his headquarters again at Frederick on the 7th of July, uh, Meade learned from General Halleck the equivalent to the Army Chief of Staff then, that uh, Lincoln uh, congratulated Grant on the surrender of Vicksburg and then said that if Meade, who has gloriously won at Gettysburg, could uh, uh, substantially destroy Lee's army, the war will be over. And suddenly, Meade is presented with the idea that the destruction of Lee's army is now uh, where the bar has been set for him. And of course, to be honest, um, you know, an army as large and sophisticated as Lee's, and I say sophisticated because not only is Lee a sophisticated uh, operational commander, a very sophisticated operational commander, but his, his core commanders, his division commanders, are also highly trained people. And the destruction of an army that size and that sophisticated is simply not in the cards. It never would be. 
You can defeat an army like that, which Meade did at Gettysburg. He defeated them. But you don't destroy an army like that. And to put the bar that high uh, makes it almost impossible, makes it absolutely impossible for a man like Meade to accomplish. And so Lincoln set himself up to be disappointed completely in this, even though George Meade at Gettysburg won for the Army of the Potomac its first victory over its enemy in the entire war up to then. I mean, well, just think about it. But From l- first let me, Manassas, go ahead, yeah. So let, me, let me just push back on that in a moment. That yeah. uh, in terms of, of setting the bar high, there's no question about that. And and you make uh, the point in your book that Halleck's orders to uh, to Meade when he assumes command of the Army of the Potomac are to to protect Washington and Baltimore. He doesn't right. say you're supposed That's to go right. out and destroy Lee. But That's right. when when Hooker was in command, uh, Lincoln did respond to Hooker's idea of, well, what if I just go capture Richmond while Lee's away in the north? Mm-hmm. And, and Lincoln is very clear, your objective is Lee's army. Uh, right. So, so there's no, Correct. Lincoln has already made it clear that what he thinks the army should be doing. And at the same time, well, no, while wait you, a minute, though. you can't, his, his, go ahead. Yeah, his, ob- his objective is Lee's army. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's clear. But his objective was not to, quote, destroy Lee's army. Uh, his, his objective was to counter Lee's army and potentially defeat it. And so uh, to put the bar at destroy at the very end of this campaign uh, in, in Pennsylvania uh, is to tell Meade that his, the bar now is beyond anything that he had been advised before. And, well, there's um, no question about that. This, that he's is, never... this, is, this is the cause of the problem. That's, and and that makes sense. the cause of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense of why, why Lincoln would be disappointed. And Lincoln's not a military-trained right. individual. No, um, no. And, and no. I, I've, I've written myself about the indestructibility of Civil War armies. There's no question. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It yeah. can't be done in the field. However, you can... Right bag an army, as, as Grant does at, at Donelson and Vicksburg and Appomattox uh, three times. So I, I, I maybe give Lincoln some slack that he's hoping Lee can be somehow bagged north of the Potomac. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I think the answer to that is really the words of General Henry Hunt. Mm-hmm. Hunt, um, uh, and I quote him at the very last of the book, Hunt was really not a favorite of Meade's. They were not close. And Hunt comes right out and says so. In fact, at one time, Meade had accused Hunt of not properly uh, commanding the, uh, the reserve artillery during the uh, Gettysburg campaign, in which Hunt came back and said it was not my, my responsibility. It was that General Taylor. That was his responsibility. And he said, and listen, if you want to accuse me of that, I'm going to resign. And, and General Humphreys inter- intervened and calmed the situation down. So Hunt is not one who would be a favorite of George Meade yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, some years after Meade died, 
Hunt, after writing a numerous articles for what became Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, wrote a letter to um, uh, General um, uh, um, uh, the, the commander of the, of the uh, uh, Philadelphia Brigade, General Webb, uh, Alexander Stuart Webb, in which he stay, went through the whole list. He says, I'm not one who would ever uh, uh, be a favorite of George Meade, yet I have found in studying the campaign that George Meade grows and grows upon me. And I found that everything he did from the time he took command was the right thing to do, from the Pipe Creek line to his insistence on defending it to his move to Gettysburg in spite of it because of the action there to the defense he made at Gettysburg to uh, operating a totally defensive campaign there or battle there and for his operations after Gettysburg, including his pursuit, were absolutely the right thing to do. And he said, the problem with it is, in the end, is that Lincoln and his cabinet, after the victory at Gettysburg, uh, were, became so unrealistic about what Meade could then do that they created this problem. And that, that certainly makes that sense. Uh, but what you just said about, about Meade growing yeah. and growing is something I really want to talk about. We're going to take a short break yeah. and see how Meade, okay. uh, you, you present a persuasive case for Meade doing the right thing during the battle. We'll come back and talk with our guest, Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. Uh, in our first segment, we talked, we sort of started at the, the other end of the campaign at the end, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where we were talking mm-hmm. about uh, the success uh, uh, or, or lack of it in, in, in bagging Lee's army whole. And authors have argued this uh, uh, the uh, people like Richard Schaus and Thomas Ryan have argued that uh, that Meade should have done this, and and Meade has gotten a bad press from some other authors. Uh, I'll, I'll just lay this out: uh, Alan Gelzo's book, which oh, has its has its detractors, uh, uh, I'd yeah. say with a uh, massive understatement, uh, mm-hmm. is is no fan of 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 Mead. Um, no, he's not. One of the things you do in this book that I, I very much enjoyed about it is you address the historiography. You talk about the the interpretations of people like uh, Coddington or Stephen Sears, uh, and especially right. Elzo and, and their their views. Um, is that? Let me ask you this: you you also have a legal background as well as historical. Is is that maybe coming out there? The lawyer uh, <laughs> laying out the other side's case and taking it apart. <laughs> Jerry, I, I'll tell you what's really kind of funny. Yeah, I've, I, I practiced law for 46 years as a trial mm-hmm. lawyer. And I, I've told so many people, I don't know if I've ever written a legal brief quite like <laughs> this book. And it is really put together like a legal brief. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the point is, what, you, what I did in trying to present Meade is to go through first the official records. And as you'll notice in the end notes, how much of the official records is represented in what I say. Mm -hmm. And so the object is, if you're going to win a case, you've got to present the facts. And the facts are first represented in things that were written at the time they occurred, the events occurred. And those are what we call in the law the best evidence. And so I use the official records to go through and explain precisely what Meade said and did. And then, I mean, to the extent I was able to locate uh, documents uh, that related to this that were not in the official records or maybe in the official records but were actually written in Meade's handwriting, I located those in the National Archives. So that you got an idea of precisely what Meade believed at the very moment he wrote those and uh, what the situation was at the time he wrote them. So that you get an understanding of exactly what he was after. And so in doing that, we set up, for instance, the first day at Gettysburg, where John Reynolds goes forward, quote, to Gettysburg, according to Meade's orders. But then, according to a letter Meade writes, a dispatch to John Reynolds on the 30th of July, of June, the 30th of June, this is the day before the battle begins, Meade writes this letter in his own handwriting, and he tells John Reynolds to move forward 
to Gettysburg to get on the routes and and means of communication of the enemy. And that means get on the daggone Chambersburg Pike. That's where all of, me, of the enemy's uh, elements are situated, either on the west of Gettysburg or east of Gettysburg or just north of the Chambersburg Pike. That road between Chambersburg and York that runs through Gettysburg becomes, as I say, the, the turnpike axis that Meade is, is conscious of. He asked Reynolds to get on it and then report to him all that he sees. He says, I want all the information you can give me. But then if the enemy pursues you vigorously, I want you to fall back to Emmitsburg. Now, that's a key thing. It's a huge thing in this story. In that, heretofore, we've heard that Reynolds was sent forward with the idea under Coddington and, and Sears, whose books are fine, by the way, um, uh, and I'm a very big fan of Coddington, but who <laughs> says that Meade was at least, that Reynolds was sent forward with the notion that if he wanted to bring on a general engagement, then it was left up to him. Well, this is a man who's now 14 miles ahead of Army headquarters, 20 miles ahead of the Fifth Corps, 32 miles ahead of the Sixth Corps, and anywhere from 10 to 14 miles ahead of all the other corps. Now, how could any of them help him if he got into trouble? They couldn't. Well, Not in Gettysburg. Let, let, let me set the, the scene a bit for listeners. Um, it, it's hard to imagine that there are people who do not know the campaign <laughs> of Gettysburg in detail as, as you do. And as, as yeah. uh, uh, it, yet some people have not spent their lives appropriately, and they don't know all this. Mm-hmm. But it, when when you know Meade has, has just been appointed commander of the Army of the yeah. Potomac. Uh, just a day ago, yeah. and and his army, as you say, is scattered out all those different distances from Gettysburg, yeah. uh, because yeah. he's, he's following Halleck's orders to screen Baltimore and Washington. So screen he's got to cover every possible way that Meade, that Lee could get there, and That's he right. doesn't know where Lee's army is somewhere in uh, Pennsylvania, as you say, on the Correct. along the turnpike all the way from York back to Chambersburg. Yeah. could be concentrated at either end or in the middle. So given that he doesn't know that, you argue that, that he, he sends Reynolds on an advance guard mission. Uh, right. Is, is advance right. guard something that, that Meade has made up, this, this idea of an advance no, guard? No, 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 no. It, 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 what's, what's really interesting about this is that the idea of using an advance, what they call, some call it an advance guard, mm-hmm. some call it a... Uh, uh, simply a reconnaissance in force. Uh, but the point is, is that you send an element of your army forward in order, to, and, and it's got to be a sizable enemy, uh, a sizable element of your, of your army, uh, some anywhere from a fifth to one seventh of the army. You send them forward with the idea of drawing the, the enemy into a position where it has to, quote, show its hand collect in front of it and show what it is what it intends to do then that advanced force is 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 supposed to withdraw fighting the withdrawal but still withdrawing back to the lines that the commander has set up which of course is the pipe creek line 
this 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 sort of action, this sort of operation, was you find in in the in the in the treatise of Dennis Hart Mahan, who was mm-hmm. the instructor of military science and theory at the United States Military Academy. He's the one who taught George Meade. He taught uh, it literally every general officer in the uh, Gettysburg campaign on both sides who went to West Point, save Robert E. Lee, who was who graduated before Dennis Hartmahan became a professor. And this Dennis Hartmahan referred to it as an advanced core. Uh, uh, he got the idea of this from Karl von Clausewitz, the, the, the Prussian officer in the Napoleonic Wars, who wrote a terrific treatise on military theory called On War, and um, that was, was, was well quoted uh, in, 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 the, um, in, in, in Mahan's treatise that he uh, published ultimately in 1847 uh, about the use of an advanced corps. All this stuff Meade was well aware of, just the theory of it. And so what he does is he literally sends Reynolds on a mission precisely in accordance with what Dennis Hart Mahan said in his treatise. And by the way, John Reynolds and Dennis Hart Mahan together fought, uh, taught military science when John Reynolds was the commandant of cadets at West Point just before the war. So these guys were well acquainted with this. And so, of course, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. So Reynolds has a, a, Reynolds knows what his mission is. He's supposed to go up to Gettysburg well in advance of the rest of the army. Yes. If he's, he's got enough troops that it's not just sending out cavalry brigade. He's got a whole corps. Lee is going to have to, bring his army together to resist this in some way, and then yep. Reynolds can report back they're here or right. they're not here, right. as the case right. might be. Um, right. Let me, let me break the flow slightly with a, just an observation. One of the things that really fascinated me about your account of, of the moments before the battle was that when Meade takes over, Stewart's Confederate cavalry is in the rear of the Army of the Potomac. He's making that <laughs> famous ride around the army. And yeah. we've all read all the criticism of Stewart. It's his fault that Lee had no reconnaissance. Uh, that's not our topic tonight. What fascinated me was that even though there's this substantial cavalry force that has literally cut off the army from Washington, cut the telegraphs, right. cut the railroad, uh, right. Meade's response is not, oh, I'm cut off, I better fall back. It's it's like there's a fly on my head. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> this is a pain, I'm annoyed, but I'm just going to keep the campaign going and fight without oh, any connection. I, I found that surprising. Yeah, it's in, it's it's really interesting. He Meade simply doesn't blink with it. Mm-hmm. Yet it's the it's the first it's the first obstacle thrown in Meade's way. He no no sooner takes command of the army than he learns that Jeb Stuart and three brigades of cavalry have destroyed the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which supplies the Army of the Potomac at Frederick, and uh, and has cut all the tele, all the telegraph wires, so he can't communicate with the government. And, and this is his introduction to command. 
but uh, I mean, going back to the to the to the Reynolds thing. Um, yes. When when Reynolds goes forward as he's supposed to, he goes forward first with only one division of his corps. That's Wadsworth. He goes mm-hmm. uh, double days. He goes forward with double excuse me double days division, and 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 he deploys that in defense of John Buford, and of course suddenly from the west and from the north that division is assaulted. General Reynolds is killed in the action, and the division is forced back by the, by the, by the thrusts from the West and the North, from the Confederate mm-hmm. Army. And, and, and suddenly, from the, an hour later, uh, the, the other two divisions finally arrive on the battlefield, but, and then they bring in the 11th Corps, and frankly, at this stage, this battle is lost out there. And these elements of the 1st and 11th Corps retreat back through town to Cemetery and Culp's Hill. Now, that's a short way of saying it's a very complicated matter, but it's the short way of saying that's what happened out there on the first day. Mm-hmm. But the reason that's important in this book <clears throat> is that as a result of that action, Meade had to take his army, which he had wanted to defend along a line that was defined by Big Pipe Creek in Maryland, just below the Pennsylvania border, which was almost an indefensible position um, uh, or an unassailable position by the enemy. Right. And, and, and um, Meade had set this up meticulously. He now was, was required to move his, uh, compelled really, to move his army to Gettysburg. And he was bringing troops, you know, 32 miles from Manchester, 20 miles from Hanover, uh, 14 and 15 miles from Taneytown and Emmitsburg up to Gettysburg, uh, all through the night of July 1 and the wee hours of July 2nd. And, but the problem with Meade now is that because he had to do that, the supply base he had set up for Pipe Creek was Westminster, which was seven miles, a town seven miles behind the Pipe Creek line. And it was connected to Baltimore by a railroad, the Western Maryland Railroad. So he could supply his army. Now at Gettysburg, Westminster is 22 miles to his rear. And to get there, you've got to use the Baltimore Pike from Gettysburg to Westminster. And the Baltimore Pike will be under threat of attack and attack the entire time Meade is at Gettysburg, which will mean that no supplies get from Westminster to the troops at Gettysburg. And this creates the problem during the pursuit of Lee that no one has ever addressed. And that is when Meade finally wins this battle, and he does so really serving as a, as, as a tactician. Meade is, beyond question, one of the greatest yet for the Army of the Potomac. He, he was the tactical commander on July 2nd, and against horrific attacks, he was able to hold the enemy back and prevail there. But his army has been without any subsistence stores for the men, and without any fodder 
for the horses and mules, of which he has nearly 30,000 at Gettysburg. And you don't feed a horse for three days, and the horse turns lame. I'm, a, I'm from Kentucky, and horses here are big here. Uh, you don't feed a horse for three days, and you expect a horse to do what they do in the Army, and you're going to lose the horse. And here he is faced with an, an enemy who's going to withdraw toward back to the Potomac River, and he has ultimately got to match that and, meet, and reach that army. And he has not had any fodder for those horses or mules in that army. And, 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 and the men haven't been fed. It, and yeah. as you point out in the book, as you just said, three days without food, the horse is no good. Men can go yeah. longer, though they're not happy they, about it. But, well, uh, also, but the animals can't. get weak. Yeah. We're going to take another week. Yes, that they, they do. We'll, we'll take another break. We'll talk uh, in the next segment. I want to ask you about Lee's, uh, or about Meade's tactics, especially on July 2nd. Uh, we're talking tonight with Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kent Masterson-Brown, author of Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. Uh, as uh, Kent, as you said in, in the first segment, this is in, in some ways... Uh, a lawyer's brief in defense of Meade. I want to <laughs> say before before we leave that comment hanging out there, that I've practiced law myself. Uh, the historians do very different work from uh, from lawyers. We don't start with a conclusion. We start with with the evidence uh, and mm-hmm. let it take us. You know, we don't have a client. We don't have to go one way or the other. We follow the evidence, but 
I don't want you to sell yourself short. I loved this book. I thought it was uh, uh, really, <laughs> really entertaining and and uh, uh, well written and interesting. And I learned about more than I realized I didn't know about Gettysburg uh, than in a long time. Uh, I highly recommend it. So it it's you. not written as a lawyer's brief. You you mm-hmm. you you lay out your thesis as a good historian does mm-hmm. that that Mead uh, uh, did a good job here, but you don't. You don't beat a dead horse, and you don't. Uh, no. And you give you give full credit to uh, uh, to all sides of, of, of issues. Oh, I, yeah, now, I try hard to do that. Yeah. One mm-hmm. of the most important points uh, that we just touched on at the end of the last segment is how Meade actually wins the battle, uh, especially on uh, July second when Lee mm-hmm. launches the the great attack on the Union left flank at Little Round Top. Yeah. Uh, Devil's right. Den, and so on. And again, listeners know this story well. We've all seen the Gettysburg movie. Uh, let's start with the the uh, the most interesting man in the world uh, of the 19th century, Daniel Sickles. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he commands the Third Corps. He's on the left flank. Uh, right. And and again, listeners, most of you know the the basic story. Uh, Meade wants him in line with the other units of the army, but Sickles deploys his corps well forward. So that's one of the first things that got me interested in this battle when I was in sixth grade was reading about this, and I'm still mm-hmm. fascinated by it. Um, yeah. You are pretty clear that, that you think Sickles had no basis for this move. No, he's absolutely insubordinate, frankly. Just insubordinate. So why he, does he do he, it? He, um, well, I, I, I don't know, um, uh, other than I guess he thought that being out there on what at least a part of which was higher ground than where he was, was better. I, I'll give him that. And indeed, a part of the ground along the Amherstburg Road is indeed higher than where he was. But the problem with it is, is that uh, the size of the Third Corps, although it was a, it was a sizable command, mm-hmm. it did not reach enough to where its right flank, which was in front of the Second Corps, was enough to even link up with the Second Corps. And so consequently, the right flank of, the third, of Sickles Corps was to- totally what they call in the air uh, near the Kadori House. And on the left flank, it was a not enough to cover Little Roundtop, which meant that any enemy attack along the left would seize Little Roundtop without almost any opposition whatsoever. And on the right flank, could get simply on Sickles' right flank, enfilade it, and then drive directly toward the Second Corps. Um, and... This is the thing that uh, like uh, General Hunt talks about in Battles and Leaders, his articles. He wrote a numerous articles about this. And, and one of the things he kept saying to, to Meade, he, re- he recalls, mm-hmm. is that, you know, okay, so it, it may be higher ground in some places, General, but we don't have enough people in this army to, to, to cover the flanks of the third Corps, plus hold the line we've got along cemetery, uh, cemetery Ridge. And so, and, and as, as it re- the result is, of course, 
is that that entire line collapses under the uh, under the assaults from Lee's army, and they and they collapse because of precisely what Hunt just just uh, what what Hunt said, and what he related to Meade, and what Meade ultimately understood it to be, that those flanks were totally in the air. There was no way to link them up to the arc, to the lines along Cemetery Ridge. And, and the enemy got on the flanks of, of both. And then, then at the, at the, at the, where, the, where the Emmitsburg Road, uh, the Humphreys lines along Emmitsburg Road on Humphreys' left, meet B- General Bernie's division on their right flank at the Peach Orchard, there was this angle. And so a, it's a perfect, a, 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 a perfect right angle. Mm. And you, you attack one end of that angle, and you defeat it, and the, and the remainder part of that angle is clobbered because you now are on the flank of it. And it's going to happen whether the, the assault comes from the south or the west. And, and this is exactly what, they, what Meade tried to tell Sickles, uh, bef- you know, tr- get, trying to get him to go back to Cemetery Ridge. But ultimately, gunfire erupted, Confederate artillery erupted, and, and Sickles had to finally hold that line himself. And he couldn't do so, as, as Meade and as Hunt had said he could not. And... Um, so but, this uh, puts Meade in, in a tactical position now. As you say, he becomes a tactical commander. He's out there, literally yeah, rides out to does. finally look at Sickles' lines and says, what are you yeah, doing out here? Exactly. And, and so he, what does he do? How, how does he, rec- well, how does he, he rectify the situation? Here, here is the operational commander of the Army of the Potomac. Meade is the operational commander. He's not supposed to be a tactical commander at this. He's an operational commander. However... What he does is immediately call the Fifth Corps, uh, uh, John, uh, 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 General um, uh, uh, um, um, I, I just, Sykes. Sykes. Name Sykes. just escaped. General General Sykes, George Sykes. Yeah. He asks General Sykes, "I want you to bring your entire corps there uh, to the to the left." And so Sykes does. He brings it up the Tawny Town Road, up the Blacksmith Shop Road, and here comes this entire corps. And Meade is there right at the intersection of the Tawnytown Road and the Wheatfield Road as this corps comes on the field. And Meade is, is with Sykes. And he tells Sykes, I want, each, I want you to throw your entire corps at them. And he points to the Wheatfield. And the reason he points to the Wheatfield is that it's basically from what he can, what he can see is kind of in the middle of General Bernie's division of, of Sickles Corps. And if he can throw everything he's got there, it will at least disrupt and slow down the assault. And then he'll deal with the flanks when he can deal with them. But up to then, he's got to throw everything he's got. And in the meantime, Little Round Top has got to be occupied. So Meade is the one who directs uh, General Warren to go up there, and in turn, Warren directs elements of the Fifth Corps to the summit of Little Round Top, and so Meade is there just tactically uh, 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 directing elements of Sykes's Fifth Corps into every position that they take, 
And what's remarkable is that, is that Meade realizes this, that, you know, he's not even going to be able to use his field artillery. He's got a, he's got a, a, a absolutely superior field artillery to the enemy, yet he can't use it at all in this, his reserve artillery, because if the enemy is fighting out there along the Emmitsburg Road and then from the Emmitsburg Road down toward the, toward the wheat field, his field artillery can't fire on the enemy for fear of hitting his own people. So those guns have to remain silent. And this has to be just an infantry battle with what field artillery happens to be there with the infantry. And one division after another, Meade throws it. In the end, he will throw five divisions of the Army of the Potomac into that wheat field morass. Until when you describe that, it is stopped. So you, you describe how he does that. He he calls for the Twelfth Corps to come from yes, the right flank from Culp's Hill, right. and brings right. brings them in. Um, exactly. And what what I was reminded of reading this was the descriptions we've all read of Lee at Antietam as the master chess player moving yeah. his brigades and divisions back and forth wherever McCollin attacks. Lee maneuvers right. just enough to win, and and we regard that as Correct. brilliant generalship. And McCollin yeah. as as a, a loser for not putting all his men in, right. but your description of Meade is very much the same thing here. He take he use he commits the Fifth Corps, then he calls for Twelfth Corps. He calls for elements of Hancock's Second Corps as he Second needs them. Corps. Right. It right. it it strikes me just as virtuoso in your description as Lee at Antietam, and and coincidentally Lee just as incompetent as mm. McCollin at Antietam. Uh, yeah, that's but, a great comparison, by the way. It's a great comparison. But but that brings us back to where we started. He gets no credit for this. We don't uh, uh, we don't think of, of Meade in those terms. That, there are so many things I enjoyed about this book. I, the maps are great. I really liked the way the illustrations, the photographs of individuals show up on the page where you're talking about the person. So few <laughs> books master that. Uh, but when I turn a page and see a person's face, I say, oh, he's on this page. Uh, yeah. it's small, but, <laughs> but respects the reader. I really enjoyed that. Oh, um, thank you. Let, let me, I, we could talk about this for three hours. We've got three minutes. Left. <laughs> <I know>. Um, <laughs> a quick question. I, I do remember yeah. hearing that on July 2nd, as things were falling apart in the wheat field around the Trousel, uh, house that Meade and him considered throwing himself and his staff in as a sort of cavalry unit, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't see that in this book. Did that? Did no, I misread no. that, or is that no, mythical? No, I never found any any uh, any justific any any factual justification for that. Okay, uh, but so I that's... did. What I did say in this is that Meade positions himself very close, as close mm-hmm. as his circumstances required, for him to be uh, near near the the point where these divisions attacking into the wheat field uh, were placed and attacking just just uh, 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 east of the Trossel farm. Uh, he, he's close enough for Old Baldy to get shot. He absolutely, well, ultimately, Old Baldy, his horse, does get shot. It does. Mm. And that's very much at the last when he's down there in front of the second, behind the second corps, throwing in as much as he can there, too, because the battle drifts north. Uh, from the wheat field where the Confederate attacks are finally stymied, 
Then it moves north toward the Trossel farm. Then it moves north toward the center of the second core lines at the, at the angle. And uh, Meade is at the angle, literally at the end of the day, and his horse is shot there. And um, has to give up old Baldy, his beloved horse, for Blackie. And he, he's mounted on another horse, Blackie, because of the wound of, of old Baldy. And, but all the way to the end, and it's now dark. And this man has been out in that battlefield the entire time, directing traffic. And uh, I've never seen, and by the way, a lot of, the, a lot of these fellows who wrote after the war uh, uh, commented, and even, even General Halleck ultimately did, commented that no general in the Army of the Potomac had ever moved elements of the Army like Meade did at Gettysburg to ensure victory on the second day. No one had ever done that. Stripped. And what was interesting is that Meade was stripping troops off of the off Culp's Hill and in the Cemetery Hill line, which protected the Baltimore Pike. So he was actually you know, willing to threaten his own line of supply and communication in order to win out there. And his idea was, I'll just, I'll just face one crisis at a time and see if I can win each crisis that comes up. And, uh, I mean, you, take, you speak of guts. I mean, that's just absolutely unbelievable for an Army commander. It it really is. It, it, the story is so full of interesting details. Uh, you talk about the famous councils of war that, that Meade holds, which, alas, we don't have time to discuss tonight. Uh, I, I was particularly struck by how little sleep and food Meade survived on throughout this three days. Uh, Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, just amazing that he could function that way. But uh, it, this book, it, it, I really thoroughly enjoyed uh alas we are out of time so uh i will say this to to our listeners um you will uh if you have any interest in gettysburg uh read mead at gettysburg a study in command by kent masterson brown who's been our guest tonight uh ken it's always a pleasure talking with you thanks so much for being on civil war talk radio you're welcome you're welcome thank you it's always a pleasure talking with you And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 